country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. In mid-April, tropical cyclone Saroja hit Indonesia's remote eastern islands and Timor-Leste, leaving devastation and death in its wake. It was just the latest severe natural disaster to strike Indonesia, and climate scientists warn of its vulnerability to more frequent and unusual weather events due to the impacts of climate change. A week or so later, at a virtual summit on climate change hosted by US President Biden, Indonesia's President Joko Widodo disappointed environmentalists at home and internationally when he failed to set a new target date for Indonesia to reach zero emissions, ahead of its earlier stated goal of 2070. In his speech to the conference, Widodo made a special note, however, of the fact that in 2020, Indonesia's rates of deforestation had reached record lows with a reduction in conversion of its natural forests, peatlands and forest fires. Does the recent data reveal a sustainable trend for the reduction of deforestation in Indonesia? What are the challenges that still remain in order to end deforestation entirely? Just how important are Indonesia's forests for the world's climate future? And can Indonesia emerge as a global superpower on climate change? To answer these questions and more, my guest is Aida Greenbury. Aida is a sustainability and climate change expert and advisor to governments, industry and NGOs. Hello, Aida. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you for having me. Aida, can you start by giving us a sense of just how important Indonesia's forests are for the world's climate future? Well, a lot of people believe that if Indonesia doesn't protect their forests and also their peatland that I'm very, very close to. We basically will fail at reducing emissions and halting runaway climate change. Indonesia contains 10% of the world's tropical rainforests and 36% of it is tropical peatlands. For people who don't know, tropical peatlands basically wet, swampy forest uh, with soil, special soil, the, the peat soil that can hold up to 20 times more carbon than other types of mineral soil. So it's been estimated that Indonesia's peatland holds around 28 billion tons of carbon. And that's basically equivalent to close to three years of global fossil fuel emissions. That's how important Indonesia forest is. Yeah, amazing. And I, I read a quote from, I think he was the CEO of the Rainforest Foundation in Norway, who said that saving this rainforest, Indonesia's rainforest, is a matter of life or death for all of us. Would you go that far? Oh, I would say so. I mean, I've been inside forest fire in the tropical forest in Indonesia. I've seen with my own eyes the devastation that it could create, not just the, the smoke and haze, but the, you know, the, the emissions, the destruction to the biodiversity. You remember when Australia was having really bad forest fire last year and they calculated how many creatures and animals died? Can you believe how many animals and other creatures or species died in Indonesia forest? Nobody calculated 
I've seen it. The destruction is not only above the ground. The destruction destruction is below the ground, under the peatland, destroying rivers and everything else, and above the ground, destroying forests and everything else. Like it is the death of a lot of animals and creatures, and and I don't think we are so far away from the death of us if, if you're not protecting it. Yeah, indeed. So, Aida, what percentage of Indonesia's primary forests have been logged? Do we know that? So uh, let me give a little bit of a background, yeah? So according to the Indonesian government, there is 120 million hectares of Indonesia. 64% of the nation's entire land area is designated as the forest area. So most of Indonesia's remaining land area is made up of non-forest area or public lands, such as other use areas. The forest area is basically classified into three functions, production forest and conservation forest and also protection forest. So that's how initial forest is being classified. And how much is actually been logged? The latest data that was reported by Greenpeace in 2018, uh, they said that Indonesia has lost 72% of its intact forest. Right. And so what kinds of uses does it have? It's a mix of a lot of things. Of course, for development. Indonesia, they only got their independence in 1945. Indonesia deserved to develop itself as a country, right? So development for development of cities, villages, infrastructures, roads. And also because Indonesia is developing, they also so since 1970s, they're also very, very active in developing forest concessions. And then probably in the 80s, they started to convert a lot of forest areas into plantations, plantations in terms of uh, forest plantations for pulp and paper, as well as, as you probably heard right now in the media, is uh, the, the controversial palm oil plantation as well. Yeah, we can talk about that a little bit in a moment. I guess this term, it's it's a little bit vague sometimes, isn't it? Deforestation. And as you were kind of pointing out, in Indonesia, there's different types of definitions for different forest areas. Can you talk us through that? Like what actually counts when you're talking about the types of forests that should be protected from deforestation? What are those forests? Basically, Indonesia doesn't have a clear definition. So right now, Indonesia has been trying to say that they're, you know, that they are protecting their primary forests. You know, they impose moratorium on conversion on their primary forests. But although it appears in their legislation, the term primary forest in Indonesia actually does not have a standard definition that is subjective to interpretation and depends on who actually use it for their vested interests or whoever is involved, you know. There is no clear definition of what deforestation is in Indonesia. And uh, secondary forest is still allowed to be cleared where I myself, uh, with with my previous experience and everything, uh, I've seen that a lot of this secondary forest is really good quality. What is classified sometimes as secondary forest or a degraded forest is still a very good forest. Yes, they're not virgin forest. They're not primary maybe, but they're very, very good forest with a lot of animals and, and indigenous community depend on. So you hit the nail on the head there. The problem with Indonesia, why it suffers so much from a lot of these deforestation issues and all, a lot of uh, NGOs or other countries calling Indonesia that, you know, like you got to halt deforestation, but yet Indonesia say, oh no, we're not doing deforestation. It's because there is no clear definition. And I've been uh, myself and, and a lot of the organizations attached to me have been trying to basically say, please, please adopt very clear definition of deforestation that is credible, that is acknowledged internationally as well. So we have one definition that so we don't have this he says, he says kind of argument. But Gemma, 
It's the same case with Australia. Australia also doesn't have a clear definition of deforestation as well. What I'm trying to say is that a lot of countries do not have a clear definition of deforestation, not just Indonesia. And it's really, really wrong. Right. And I mean, it's got huge implications, doesn't it? Because, uh, you know, my next question is, is about the recent announcement from the Ministry of Environment and Forestry, Siti Nurbaya, in which she very proudly announced that Indonesia's deforestation rate in 2020 represented a historic low. And she was, you know, very, as I say, very proud about this. So perhaps there's some murkiness around this too. Can you explain to us what you see as the causes for the decline, if it is indeed a decline, and if it indicates a long-term sustainable trend for Indonesia? Um, I believe they're telling the truth. I believe that it is a decline. But, you know, if you only have so much of forest and a lot of forest has already been gone or, or converted, eventually you have to decline in deforestation, right? I mean, uh, uh, it's true that it's a decline and it's good news. But go back to our previous discussion, how they define deforestation is not clear. So we don't know the real number. I mean, the government said that the 2020 figure of deforestation was 115,459 hectares. But we don't really know how it come up with that number because the definition of deforestation itself is not clear, like I said before. But we believe, yes, it has declined. Global Forest Watch also said that it has actually a record low. But when we see about the trend, yeah, it's, it's been the trend that the deforestation in Indonesia has declined for several years. But before we actually come up with a clear definition of deforestation that is agreed and acknowledged internationally, then we're still going to go to, is it really true? Because right now, declining is not enough. We got to end deforestation. That's the, that's the problem right now. And then now why it has declined, like I said before, if you don't have so much, and of course you have to decline your activity to remove the forest anyway. Secondly, it's true that Indonesian government has issued a lot of regulations and policies, you know, moratorium and everything else that help reduce the deforestation rate. 2020 was also extremely uh, wet year, uh, La Nina. I mean, we also feel it in Australia. So it's very wet year. So of course, because it's wet year, there's no forest fire. Forest fire was one major destroyer in Indonesia in the previous years. And uh, of course, there's COVID as well that limit activity of, of people in the field. And if I'm not mistaken, the, in 2020, palm oil price was also hit very low price. So uh, it doesn't give enough incentive for people to clear land for palm oil. So there's a, a mixture of, of possible reasons why the number has declined. Mm. But like I said, declining is not enough. Uh, we need to see when is it going to actually end, you know, because if it's continue creeping deforestation, although it's low, but continually creeping until there's none left, that is not, is not good. So yeah, it does not make sense at all. Exactly. Is And the government, so you're saying the government has not set a target for reaching zero deforestation? Well, well, they're going to submit their plan for zero net emission to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, in this year. So um, in their plan, still very grim, because even the most ambitious scenario, they're only calling for halving the deforestation rate, which means that under that scenario, that's the most amb ambitious scenario, to achieve net carbon sink by 2030, they're going to continue deforestation rate at 241,000 hectares. That means between 2010 and 2030, they're still going to allow deforestation at close to 5 million 
million hectares. Wow. That's massive amount of forest. Yeah, when you have a diminishing supply that, you know, cannot like is not being reforested, is not being replenished. It's also interesting here that just recently Joko Widodo attended the Joe Biden Virtual Climate Summit and he he mentioned, Aida, this particular achievement in that speech as one of his main points, which was that Indonesia had reached this historic low for deforestation, its carbon emissions targets it was hitting. But environmentalists were very critical of his speech for not announcing, as you're saying, these targets for Indonesia to get to net zero carbon emissions. Net zero carbon emission in the plan that was going to be submitted is basically going to be uh, in 2070, right? In the plan for net zero emission by 2070, it's still a law reliant on coal as well. Coal is, again, totally different discussion again, but let's stick with deforestation. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot going on. This announcement by the minister, these, this hitting this target, whatever that target is, you know, however it's measured, this deforestation target, it does mean, though, doesn't it, that under the reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation scheme, which is known as RED+, Plus, which is bankrolled by a Norwegian NGO, as I understand it, but you can tell us more, Indonesia will be getting a significant cash injection as a result of hitting that target. But maybe you can tell us about RED+, a little bit and who's involved and what you think reaching the milestone means. So Red Plus projects basically was invented in Bali, Hop, and the money is basically coming from development agencies from Norway, Germany, UK and United States also, including World Bank's uh, carbon funding to avoid deforestation and also uh, conserve biodiversity and a reduction of emission from deforestation, of course. And last year, for 2014 and 2016, Indonesia uh, has proven to reduce this emission and was paid more than $100 million. Will this time secure Indonesia to be paid more? I don't know. Of course, a lot of verification need to be done as well on the ground before they actually can pay or not. Look, I support Red Plus movement, but Red Plus initiative cannot work alone because it will not work alone. I think it's great that Red Plus has a very high agenda in UNFCC, but it just will not succeed in ending deforestation at all. I don't think so. The main flaw of Red Plus, I think, is you know using it as offsetting, and the price is just too low. You know, it's five dollar a ton or something like that, which is ridiculous. You know, like I, I remember in the old days when they were around twenty dollars a ton. So with this price per ton, it just shows us how people just do not value forests. That's one major flaw of setting the price and the leakage. The fact that you have a Red Plus project in one area, in one district, does not mean it. In other landscape, in the province, for example, is also stopping deforestation. You know, people just move, okay, I just I just stopped deforesting here, but I'm just going to move my deforestation in Papua, for example. So there's always leakage. So I support the, the main objective of Red Plus in reduction emission and everything else, but it's just one of the means to achieve the greater goal and it cannot work alone. We need so many other initiatives to support Red Plus to end deforestation once and for all. Right. Well, as you alluded to earlier, when we're talking about one of the potential reasons for reduction in deforestation in 2020, you referred to the reduction in demand for palm oil. Our listeners might be well aware of the international push in recent years for the consumers not to purchase products that use palm oil because of this link between deforestation in Indonesia and Malaysia. But I wonder, is someone who has worked in the palm oil industry, you've still got really close ties with farmers in that industry, 
Can you explain to us this link between palm oil production and deforestation and what impact have such bans by the EU and others had on the national level, but also at the very local level? I will say that, yes, there's a clear established link between palm oil and deforestation. It's been cited by many, many credible reports, research, analysis and everything else. But this is not to say that palm oil cannot be produced without deforestation. It can. So part of my work in supporting Indonesian palm oil smallholders is because this particular group is committed to ending deforestation and committed to end forest conversion. So it is clear that palm oil can be delinked from deforestation, especially when it's being managed properly. And, and in my particular case, I'm supporting small farmers and smallholders to do that. Uh, so palm oil can be produced responsibly. That's clear. The problem right now is the traceability issues that many, many companies, consumer, major, major consumer good companies, major palm oil producers do not have traceability system in place to cover the whole supply chain. So how can we, the consumer, know whether this palm oil is actually as a result of deforestation or not? So that's the main problem. The problem is not palm oil. The problem is the very poor system that we have in these companies to separate bad palm oil from good palm oil. That's my opinion. So I'm also very uh, tough in trying to advocate this, especially smallholders, to establish clear traceability system. So then when they sell it to companies, these companies basically can declare, okay, this particular palm oil is from smallholders. It's not as a result of deforestation. Right. Get that kind of sustainability stamp or whatever it is that's the international. Verif- verification or certification or whatever it is that they can get. Then the onus is on the smallholder, on the producer themselves to do that. Correct. Yeah. And also the companies, the consumer goods companies, they are as responsible as the palm oil farmers and palm oil producers. The consumer has the right to know where their palm oil coming from. Regarding to EU is is different issue because EU is basically related to energy policies. Every country, every state have the right to define their own policy. So it's a different issue. I strongly believe that we should not burn food as fuel. Uh, I don't I don't believe in that. You know, like even burning biomass as fuel, I think is wrong. I think fuel should be created from renewable sources. So I agree with clean energy policy that EU is implementing, although EU is actually omitted smallholders in their policy. So they still allow smallholders to supply as long as they can prove that they're responsible smallholders. But don't forget that EU's ban is only related to palm oil to be used as fuel or energy, not for food. Okay. What are the other impacts on the farmers that you see? The reason why I support smallholders is because they have not been treated fairly, to be honest. How can they help support forest conservation if their products are not actually being bought, are not purchased standard price? How can they conserve forests if their products are not being prioritized in the market? How can they actually conserve forests if there's no traceability system in place to show that this is smallholder products, you know? So, of course, the impact is huge in in smallholders because the companies who produce the soap and the oil and, you know, toothpaste you and I buy do not have the traceability system to, to link it to smallholders. So how can we empower smallholders to get the proper price and proper welfare and everything else if there's no link, if there's no traceability system? 
So that's that's my 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 biggest issue right now is basically to make sure that smallholders are treated properly. They are being paid with a standard price so they can do their job to cultivate palm oil responsibly and conserve forest areas in the surrounding plantation if they can. And so that is part of their goals too, right? To Correct. participate in that conservation. Because a lot of those forests are customary forests, you know, that the, the forest has been protected by their ancestors, by their grandfather, great-grandfathers. They don't want to cut it. They don't want to. They want to protect it. But they need money to be able to conserve them, you know, to, to do the patrol, you know, to, to do a proper assessment. They do need money to do it. And how can they make money if their products are not being purchased properly? Yeah, there has to be a balance struck Mm -hmm. there. And as you're saying, it's best when seen from that local level because, you know, they're the people who live there, who have for generations, who are the custodians of the land. It is in their own best interest to protect it. I mean, it's in all of our interests, but particularly those people. Yeah. And so working with them makes so much sense. But Aida, is the government working with these smallholders? You mentioned NGOs and yourself. But is the government taking responsibility for supporting these farmers? There are programs, but the implementation has been very slow. There is a recent uproar about what they call palm oil fund that has been set up to support, including smallholders, but the fund has not been spent to support smallholders. They actually use more than 90, I think 90% of the fund to support big industry players in their biofuel industry. So it's now being investigated. So uh, implementation has been very slow and obviously smallholders is not a priority in the eyes of palm oil players and the government at this stage yet. Mm. I was really interested, Aida, when recently on Twitter you, you commented, and I loved this, but I want you to explain it to us. You said that Indonesia is a superpower on climate change issues. Can you tell us what you mean by superpower? Um, That was actually a tweet to respond to somebody who asked me uh, the question because I think there was a claim that uh, somebody from COP Glasgow said that Indonesia is a superpower on climate change issue. And then, you know, that uh, claim was basically being spread around by the government of Indonesia, that Indonesia is a superpower on climate issues, climate change issue. And and I said, uh, well, I do not disagree Indonesia can be superpower on climate change issue if we are actually managing our resources properly, but it's not the case yet. So um, like I said earlier in in our discussion, Indonesia holds 10% of the world's tropical rainforest and the balance of the planet depends on it. What is it if it's not a superpower? You know what I mean? Yeah, it has huge potential. Is, is exactly what it, it has this huge potential to to balance the planet by conserving our forest, by restoring our forest, and like I said, you know, tropical peatlands is basically equivalent of nearly three years of global fossil fuel emissions. Global fossil fuel emissions. We we kept that kind of a carbon in our tropical peatland in Indonesia. That's superpower. But I don't think our power has been used or managed properly to become the real superpower. So I, I really hope that the Indonesian government can restructure their net zero emission target, you know, to make it shorter and also to restructure on how to achieve that. You know, the, 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 they're saying that we need to cut down the forest because we need to develop ourselves. Yeah, maybe 30 years ago, we don't need to do it now anymore. 
you know, 30 years ago, yes, we still needed to develop the country, but we don't need to do it anymore. We can basically increase our our yield and our plantation without converting any more rainforest. So we can use energy from ocean, from the river, or from everything that we have to fuel us instead of relying on coal. I don't think it's being looked at properly. Yeah, I agree with you absolutely that it underestimates the potential of its power internationally on the global stage to be a leader on climate change. And I guess that's why environmentalists, you know, that continue to be disappointed when the president doesn't make bolder commitments to reach those targets like like he did last week. And in fact, some of the policies seem really small, Aida, like in his statement at the Biden virtual summit, he mentioned Indonesia's commitment to building the Indonesia Green Industrial Park in North Kalimantan and mangrove rehabilitation and this kind of thing. What do you think about that project? And is that one of many? I don't think we have done enough in restoration. If we can build one more in North Kalimantan, yes, great, because North Kalimantan is actually still in a good quality and is under threat, but not so severely under threat yet. So it's good to conserve it and, and it's good to restore the area instead of let it uh, fall apart like other provinces. So I think it's a good idea. Any idea to restore high conservation areas are always a good idea, but I don't think you have, you have done enough, tell you the truth. And you reiterate this point that, well, you want to achieve zero deforestation, but it's also about reforestation. How does yep. that happen? Not just reforestation, but restoration. Restore back what we actually damaged in the past. Because like I said, technology, research and everything else actually help us quite a lot in increasing the yield of our commercial plantations. You know, we don't need so much anymore. So uh, now we also have more knowledge that certain area is critical for climate change, such as tropical peatlands, watershed areas that we didn't know 25 years ago, maybe, you know. So 25 years ago, we probably, you know, destroyed the tropical peatland and, and converted it into some kind of plantation. But then now we do know that, hold on a second, that area is actually quite important to conserve carbon, for example. So let that area go, restore it back to where it was before, if it, the best we can change our technique to use plantation species that is not requiring peatland drainage, for example. I'm, I'm very strong in, in the in the anti-peatland drainage thing. So uh, maybe we need to adopt different species for plantations that are uh, flood, flood tolerant, so then we can conserve tropical peatland and produce commercial products as well, whatever that is, oil or wood or whatever, but we need to basically change. That's what I meant by restructuring our plan to net zero emission. It's not just to continue business as usual, continue draining peatland, continue planting the same species that we've been planting for 50 years. You know what I mean? We need to adopt new things to conserve the planet because we know so much now that we didn't know 30 years ago. Yeah, wow. You've set out a plan for what needs to be done, but when you're advocating for an end to deforestation, the reality is that there are a lot of challenges. You've mentioned a few of these, Laida, but I wondered if you could go into a little bit more detail about what you see as the key challenges there. Oh, in Indonesia, the key challenges is basically political reasons, you know, that I really don't want to get into. But basically, These companies who still want to convert forests basically have big voice nationally. They have a lot of lobbying power and everything to continue doing their business as usual. There are a lot of areas that can be used for commercial activity without converting forests. The core 
cost of this is basically greed, savvy. People only think about short-term profit and do not want to think further what will happen in the future. At the end of the day, is greed, capitalism, and how certain people want to amass their own wealth on the expense of others. You know, like others does not necessarily mean other people, but others as in other other animals and biodiversity. And unfortunately, still very much the case in Indonesia. Yeah, a lot of the systemic problems that you you mentioned, the political ones, the ones around corruption, are in, in you know lots of sectors of Indonesian society, not just in in the forestry sector. So I was reading somewhere C4, I think it was, it had a quote there which was talking about the need for transformational change in the forestry sector, which is you know what you're talking about, but but generally through Indonesia's whole political ecosystem that needs to be done. And so for that. Aida, we always talk about the future and the young people and the next generation. So I wonder, you know, in your travels around and your exchanges, are you seeing a mind shift, a different approach coming from young people? Is that something we can hope for? Oh, absolutely. I love talking to younger generation. You know, like I really think this change will only happen once this generation actually take power. I'm talking about the 18 years old, that even 25 year old, you know, like the below 30 generation, they, their mindset and everything else is just totally different. Can you believe it? I had argument about responsible peatland management with my daughter when she was like 11. You know what I mean? Wow. So, exactly. So, um, so this is, this is the younger generation. They know, they know what's going on. They are as frustrated and they have this willingness to make change and my son you know he wants to go into politics because he wants to change the way it's done in Australia for example you know like I don't want to be ageist or whatever you know but older generation mentality as we're talking about forestry here yeah the older generation mentality loggers mentality that do not belong here anymore you know what I mean it's time to change and I think the younger generation have the energy to do that. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end our discussion. I always like to end it with a little bit of hope. That's good. That's possible. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Gemma. That was Aida Greenbury. Aida is a sustainability and climate change expert and advisor to governments, industry and NGOs. She was the Managing Director of Sustainability at Asia Pulp and Paper Group for 13 years and currently sits on advisory boards for a range of organisations, including Indonesia's Palm Oil Smallholder Unions and Monga Bay. Talking Indonesia will return on the 20th of May, hosted by Dave McRae. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.